0: At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired.
1: We are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame Soothe, Well, The 55 Teachings of TSD Mindfulness. On today's episode, we discuss a recent masterclass, Sarah Watch, with John Kabat-Zinn, in which he discusses the attitudes that he recommends that you bring to your mindfulness practice to help improve your practice. I'm Jacob DeRossett. We are here with Sarah Valley. Sarah, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you. Usually I tell Jacob the topic before we start recording. That's his prep time, a few minutes. I was just wondering what is the topic today. (laughs) Yeah, I think Jacob, you're kind of like a method actor. Do you want to share anything about your process?
1: (laughs) I don't have one. That's my process. (laughs) Which that is a process, I think. I like to just be open, be you know, beginner's mind.
0: I think that's Perfect because you're at the place where our listeners are. Our listeners, that's all they have really is, is the topic. I watched a masterclass the other day. Some of John Cobbett Zinn's video on masterclass. I think it's okay that we do this. I don't think it's a, an infringement on masterclass because this is basically a big advertisement for masterclass.
1: When I see those masterclass ads, just want to know where they film them at. Those houses are always beautiful. <laughs> I know. That's all I can think of when I see it is like, man, where do they do this? Who's the interior designer? It's always just so appealing to look at.
0: Well, I assumed that it was his house when I was watching the John Cobb at Zen, I assumed that was his office or something. No, they staged these.
1: I would imagine so.
0: Here's a little confession. I'm a Kardashian fan. I watch all the Kardashian shows. And so does
1: my wife. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, good. We got to talk. And so, Kris Jenner, I just absolutely love that woman. She has taught me so much about business. She has a masterclass, and they showed the filming of that masterclass in an episode. It was just a screen in the background. Maybe they green screen it. I, I'm going to Google this. Know.
1: My thought is always like, well, they do such a good job with it. It makes you feel like it's that person's space. It,
0: it does. It's, it adds to the experience because you're like, oh, I feel like I'm inside John Cabetzen's house right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: I remember that was a nice house. I was like, boy, he sold a lot of books.
0: <laughs> a big shout out thanks to my sister who got me the masterclass for my birthday. John cobbett zinn he grew up in New York City. He earned a PhD in molecular biology in 1971 from MIT. Did you know that? I didn't realize that.
1: I didn't know that, but I remember reading his book. Oh, goodness, what book was it? Wherever we go, there you are. I just remember being like, wow, he seems very science-based.
0: Yeah, I guess I thought that he was part of that clan from Harvard. I just assumed he went to Harvard because Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein and- The
1: jubus right? Yeah, and Jeff
0: Cornfield, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they went to Harvard. For some reason, I thought John Kabat-Zinn was one of those people. I don't know, maybe they hung out. I mean, they were both in Boston, right? Probably. Yeah, so John Kabat-Zinn was also a Vipassana teacher, and that's the training that I have. The background that I have is Vipassana. It's also referred to as insight meditation. And in 1979, he founded the Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. I think that's what most people associate him with is that stress reduction program that he put together. I generally have difficulty with meditation teachers. They trigger me. I'm like, no, that's not right. Why are you saying it like that? Things like that. But I will say that I feel like I'm on the same page with John Kabat Zinn, I uh, really liked some of the things that he was sharing. His definition of mindfulness is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non judgmentally. Mm. Yeah. So my definition is a little bit different. My definition is that mindfulness is awareness of sounds physical sensations, your breath, which is a combination of sounds and physical sensations, visually what's going on around you in your physical world, and also mindfulness of your emotions, your thoughts, and also mindfulness of your attention. What type of attention are you using when you are aware of these thoughts and emotions and sounds and and so forth? This whole idea of paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally, I stray a little bit from that because I teach my students that even if you are being judgmental in your attention during your mindfulness practice, you're still being mindful as long as you are aware that that's what you're doing.
1: That's interesting. If you're not being judgmental about your judgment, are you being non-judgmental? You know what I'm saying?
0: I just have trouble with saying that you have to be in non-judgmental attention to be practicing mindfulness. I, oh
1: yeah, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, cuz then that means that if you are being judgmental, you're not being mindful. I think he would say the same thing that we're saying though about being non-judgmental about your judgmental mind which happens. But that's that's hard though to accept and relax in the fact that like okay, you know, it's fine.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. That's probably what he would say. John Kabat-Zinn says that there is no ideal meditation state. That feeling calm and relaxed during meditation is just one experience that we have during meditation. And I think this takes pressure off that we need to attain this certain state. We talk about this in our episode sixteen on enlightenment.
1: Does that go against the Vipassana model, though?
0: I don't believe so. What separates Vipassana from some other paths of Buddhism is its focused on technique. All the conversations are about how we're practicing and what techniques that we can use. I struggle a little bit because there are these states that you attain. There's the no self experience. There's the integration experience is what I teach. And I get why he's saying because you cannot attain those states if you are trying to attain those states. If you desire to attain that state, you need to completely let go of all of that. But I wish that in the mindfulness community and in, in the Buddhist community, teachers spoke more about these certain states.
1: If you download the Waking Up app, you get a free month. And uh, Sam interviews a lot of mindfulness teachers on there. And they talk a lot about this stuff. I've got to hear a lot of conversations. And he really pokes at all of those uh, things with them. But I am curious, though, is it being non-judgmental, being in a state of non-judgment? You know what I'm saying? So like to say that you're not supposed to be striving for a state, The ask would be, you need to take a step back into non-judgment of your judgment. Well, then are we not asking somebody to step into a state of non-judgment?
0: That's a good point because a lot of teachers will say that it is better to be in a state of equanimity, which is emotional, mental calmness, and to be in a state of non-judgment, to be in a state of non-attachment. And so... These are states that we're trying to get to. I think it's a paradox, right? They're both true on both sides. It depends on the moment what side you are relating to.
1: The more time that you're aware and mindful of your experience and aware of impermanence and emptiness and all these things, The better it is, right, what I've heard from teachers to say is that you're trying to reach a level of stabilization to where I'm not getting pissed off at somebody that I care a lot about because of the mood that I'm in that day.
0: I think it's about becoming conscious, becoming more conscious, becoming more aware of what is going on within your psyche and your body and your being. I think that if we want to get better at the practice, we do need to gently remind ourselves to be in what I call mental neutrality, which is we're not going to get attached to thoughts about oh, I don't like this, or I'm not doing it right, or this is really frustrating that this car sound is ruining my meditation experience. But instead, mental neutrality is feeling any emotions that come up, not denying any emotions, but letting go of those those judgments and just taking everything as it is. So yeah, I think for us to improve, we do need to encourage ourselves to to be mentally neutral, non-judgmental, however you want to say it. And and this is a good segue to the next thing that John Kabat-Zinn was talking about, which is healing versus curing. Same type of paradox here. If you view healing as a cure or a fix, it can limit you in your own healing, letting go of some of those desires for certain outcomes. For my clients, I think they get to true healing when they move into complete self-acceptance. With whatever the discomfort is. So just completely loving and accepting themselves with the pain or with the grief.
1: How do you differentiate healing and curing?
0: Curing is fixing it. He is saying that healing is not about fixing it. Healing, it's not necessarily a fix, meaning you don't get back to how you were before the incident, but you do get to a great place. The curing, concept is you get back to how you were. The healing concept is you don't get back to how you were, but you get to a good
1: place. This is interesting because people that have injuries that work with me, physical injuries, they get very, very distraught about the fact they have an injury. And then they're like, oh, I'm asymmetrical. And I'm like, yes, that did happen. And We'll do the best we can to mitigate, but it's not the end of the world. Many people have this. Almost everybody has broken their foot when they were 12, and now they're having right hip pain that's almost debilitating, and they're 40, but you can't fix the fact that that left foot got crushed at one point or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, and going through that little mini grief process of that loss and and moving forward to something new and different. John Kabat-Zinn also talks about how mindfulness is relationality, and he admits that that's a word that he made up, relationality. And he says this is a practice of becoming aware of your relationship with everything. And I am so on board with these ideas. And the way I teach this is I say that everything is either a form we have a relationship with or a form of relationship. So I'll say that again. Everything in our experience is either a form we have a relationship with or a form of relationship.
1: I'm going to need you to go a little farther. Okay. I kind of twisted my head up a little bit.
0: Is a window a form you have a relationship with or is it a form of relationship?
1: Seems like it's a form I have a relationship with.
0: Yeah. And using mindfulness, we can investigate that relationship with the window. The window is protective for us. It protects us from the outside elements. And it also is emotional on some level. The window allows the light to come in and the scenery to come in that can bring us joy. So we have a a relationship with something as simple as a window. And you can go through all the things in your physical environment and do the same thing and realize the relationship you have. You can do the same thing with concepts like a speed limit. We have a relationship with a speed limit and our relationship with a speed limit can change depending on whether you're on a highway or whether you're in a residential area, political ideas. We have these relationships with all these different things. And then a form, what might be example of a form A form of a relationship.
1: Would that be like you and I have a podcast together? So that's like a form of a relationship that we have.
0: Yeah. So our relationship, the form is it's personal, but it's also business. There's trust there. I think we trust each other. Forms of relationship could be trust, dependence, dread, practicality, could be fear, could be hatred, (laughs) could be all these different things. And then on top of it, We have a relationship with the forms of relationship that we have. So we have our own relationship with love. We have our own relationship with dread. We have our own relationship with dependence. So you can use your mindfulness to just have a wow moment and think about all that. Consider it.
1: Wow, this is fascinating. I've been listening to a lot of Alan Watts recently. Are you familiar with Alan Watts stuff? Yeah. This is totally on brand with a lot of stuff that I've been hearing him say recently. I remember hearing this physicist, I cannot remember who it was. It may have been Neil deGrasse Tyson, but someone was asking him the craziest concept he'd ever learned. And he was saying, the only thing that separates you and I is we're different densities. Hmm. Because we're all made of the same stuff. Yeah, And so the only reason you're not the sun is because you're different density than the sun. And that blew my mind. And so now I, especially in political sense, whenever I am vehemently disagreeing with someone about something, I go back to this idea of like, well, this person is me as much as I am them. Sorry, I just derailed all of this, Mm -hmm. but that is totally on brand with what I've been learning about recently Mm -hmm. listening to.
0: When you say density, do you mean molecular density or energetic density or both?
1: So we're both atoms and your bundle of atoms is a different density than my bundle of atoms. So you have one pillow that's firmer than the other pillow. Well, okay, you could take that philosophically and say, okay, I am a more gushy person than you are, you know, and that's really it. That's the separation is we're just bundled together a little bit differently, but we are the exact same thing. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm I think endlessly I'm, fascinated.
0: I think I've heard this in a scientific sense that ourselves and animals and plants and things like that are mostly carbon. Is that the? element so on a kind of atomic level that were very similar. John Kabazin goes on to explain that there are these certain attitudes that he says that support our mindfulness practice and they are non-judging, patience, beginner's mind, trust, non-striving, and acceptance. This is what he says about non-judging. He says that the problem with judging is that it limits the way we act. And he also says that when you're on your deathbed and you're reflecting back on your life, it doesn't matter if your experiences were positive, neutral, or negative. What seems to really matter in the scenario is that you are awake and aware of your experiences. I think that's fair. And I think that this whole judging limits the way we act it's a little abstract. I mean, it's true, but sometimes it's a good true. Sometimes we need to limit the way we act. So I don't know. That that part's a little abstract for me. I prefer the way Sharon Salzberg goes about teaching about non-judging. And she says that when we are non-judging, we create space. And in this space, we can have liberation. We can be more, we can understand more. And when I do that, my own work with clients, we're creating that space, even if it's temporary, to just have enough time to give yourself compassion, create that space, just enough time to enjoy the moment free of positive and negative, and create that space to be free of perceptions.
1: I remember hearing a George Munford, he was the mindfulness teacher of the Chicago Bulls. And he said that Michael Jordan is one of the most present people he's ever met in his entire life. When you see him on the court playing, you can tell he is absolutely fully embodied in the moment. Obviously, physically, he was a specimen. But mentally, his ability to just be in the moment is just just second to none.
0: saw Michael Jordan at the Ritz-Carlton on Miami Beach years ago. Yeah, yeah. He was drinking a Red Bull and looking at his Blackberry. I was like, oh my God.
1: That's crazy. I could never talk to him. It's too much.
0: When John Kabat-Zinn goes into the non-striving, he addresses exactly what you were talking about. He says, when you realize there is nothing to attain, then this is when anything is possible. Another paradox, right? So being attached to the outcome can actually interfere with performance. And he specifically talks about athletes. And he says that meditation does not take away your edge. In fact, he says athletes would say that meditation is their edge. When did average become negative? If you look out at a sea of people, the better people are the ones who are striving to be better than the bottom half. Do you know what I mean? When you look out at the sea of people, the better people are the ones who are striving to be better than the bottom half.
1: If you have no love of something and no no desire, or it's not contributing directly to something you love, mm-hmm. your ability to improve it is is negated. Basically, like it, you will burn out and you will stop eventually. It doesn't mean you can't improve it, but it means that your half life of your ability to push that thing right. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't care about piano and nobody in your life cares about piano, and you just walk around randomly and just decide, I'm just going to just start getting very good at piano, you will eventually stop because you have no connection with it deeply. Versus if you're fascinated by piano or, you know, you really want to learn piano because you want to play someone a song, then you will improve on that thing. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So it's like your intention. So I guess that's my point too, is I struggle with this idea of having to be above average. Yeah. It just doesn't sit well with me. And I, have to help my clients let go of this because it also creates a lot of stress. One of the things that helps let go of this is understand that our worth is not associated with our accomplishments. And I know this might sound like a foreign language to some, but I think it's an important mindset to have. So one of my mantras that I say is it doesn't matter if I succeed or fail, it matters that I love myself either way. So that's from the heart, like what you're talking about. It needs to come from the heart.
1: Yeah, it needs to be a noble pursuit is the way that I think about it.
0: John Kabat-Zinn talked about how greatness can come from and motivation can come from being, not doing. And the example that he gives is a professional baseball player who's in the outfield. The guy up to bat hits a ball way out, And this pro ball player does this amazing jump. You just, nobody can believe it. He jumps up and he catches the ball. And he says that comes from being, not doing. Yes, he went through loads of training, which he says is important. But in that moment, he was just being the moment and it all just came through. So that's How I think mindfulness can really help athletes or someone who is striving for these amazing accomplishments. So that's what he says about non striving. He talks about patience. He says that we are missing our moments to get to another moment. And he also talks about not being able to push the river. I love that, especially being in Asheville where we have all these rivers and it's such a good metaphor. And you think about the river. I think life is just going to flow the way it's going to flow on this deep level, and there's not a lot we can do about it on that deep level. Now, on the surface, there are certain things that we can do to manipulate things, but on that deep level, life's just going to move the way it's going to move. He also talks about beginner's mind, and he says when we know something, it prevents us from seeing reality as it is. The way I look at this is if you're knowing outcomes, if you're knowing the way things should turn out. If you're knowing certain information, then that's so much of the intellect. But this type of knowing doesn't take place in the heart. When we're truly in the heart, when our consciousness is truly in our heart, we don't know these things. We don't know outcomes. We don't know how things should be. We're really in this open place. There's so much responsibility tied up with knowing what's going to happen. You feel responsible in some way, but if you let go of knowing what's going to Happen, you also let go of the responsibility in it and you feel much lighter.
1: My mom is a professional worrier. So we talk about this all the time where she just worries about everything all the time. And uh, she feels like a need to worry. Like if she doesn't worry, she doesn't care. So if something bad does happen, she wasn't putting worry towards it. Therefore, she's somehow responsible for this.
0: Good point. And he talks about trust, trust in yourself, trust in your intentions trust in your intention to be authentic, trust that you know when not to be trusting, trust in your breath, trust in your heart pumping, which I think is all great. But his discussion about trust is so much about trusting yourself. And I differ from that a bit because I do acknowledge a source energy, if you want to call it God, a divine flow energy, and that that is also something to surrender to and trust. And lastly, he talks about acceptance. And I love, love, love what he said about acceptance. And it actually changed the way I look at things. I I really appreciate this. So here it is. He says that acceptance isn't necessarily about accepting the way things are and resigning to them. Instead, he says acceptance is accepting that what is going on is the reality you are looking at. I'll say that again. He says that acceptance is accepting that what is going on is the reality you are looking at as opposed to making up some story in your head or distracting yourself from not seeing it or denying it. Those of us who are practicing mindfulness, we practice mindfulness so we can accept the reality that's in front of us whether we like it or not. It's not about getting to a place where where what we see, we like, which I think there's some other spiritual paths. They're trying to get to this place where, ooh, everything's blissful and things are joyful. That's not the path of mindfulness. Path of mindfulness is about seeing what's really there, the priority being that you're really seeing it. Not that it's awesome. It could be not awesome, but the fact that you're able to see it. And he makes the point that when you see the reality of what's happening, that you take action to stand up against harm. That's something that people struggle with when they are making a decision whether to go down this path is they don't want to go down a path that's going to tell them, hey, you just got to be okay with the way everything is. But this, the way he explained this is letting us know that, no, you don't have to be okay with it. You just got to see it (laughs) and accept that this is the reality.
1: The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, and D as in dwell. Mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast thank you